Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. You know, you guys, sometimes you hit us up and you say things, and then I read them, and then... She weeps. No, I mean... Yes. Yeah, your eye holes leak. It's just amazing. You're letting us into your lives over and over again, and it's awesome. And Catherine reached out on Instagram and said that uh, she and her sister are going to our show in Boston, which is very exciting. And uh, she said, you know, life can be really difficult and everyone goes through their challenges. And while I am recently going through mine, listening to your podcast every morning on the way to my chiropractor, LOL, really puts some good laughs into me that are needed and something so small can really help a person more than you know and that's just and it's true because this message helped me more than you can know that's yeah it's so true it's funny how a little thing like that can make a big difference in somebody's life yeah whether it's in her case the podcast or in our case receiving a nice message like that you hear stuff like that it kind of makes your day yeah whatever we're looking forward to seeing you Catherine and rebecca uh, at the Boston show. That'll be great. I think you go first. I do go first. Are we Are we ready? All right. Here we go. <laughs> Wait. Banjo has to get ready. <clears throat> yeah. Get ready, Banjo. Here he goes. Always getting up on your pillows. Oh, dog ass pillow. Oh, yep. Turning yeah. it around. Oh, God. At least because he's kind of like buried in there now. Maybe yeah. it'll kind of stifle the snoring. But it won't stifle the ass smell. I can promise you that. No. All right. Here we go. A moment more, and I had fettered him to the granite. In its surface were two iron staples distant from each other by about two feet horizontally. From one of these depended a short chain, from the other a padlock. Throwing the links about his waist, it was about the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was too much astounded to resist. Withdrawing the key, I stepped back from the recess. I soon uncovered a quantity of building stone and mortar, 
I'm sorry. Did I miss something? I, did I like have a stroke and miss the beginning of this story? What's happening? With these materials and with the aid of my trowel, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance of the niche. That's from, of course, Poe's The Cask of Amontillado, where he walls the guy, he tricks the guy, his enemy, into going down into the caverns and, you know, hey, we're going to go get a great cask of wine. Right. And then he walls him up. Yeah. That act is called immurement, walling people up alive. And that's what we're going to talk about today. That's terrible. It's a terribly cruel way to kill somebody. I would agree. Yes. And it was used as capital punishment for centuries. Really? Yes. It seems like a lot of walling. I mean, couldn't you just like... Well, you could do that, sure. But masonry was an up-and-coming trade at the time. Oh, okay. So making jobs, it's like infrastructure jobs. Right, yeah. Yeah. It's infrastructure, and you are creating jobs. Well, maybe we could do some sort of capital punishment where we pave roads over you. Actually, as we get into this, you're not far off. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Now, the victim is essentially buried alive or walled up and left to suffocate in agony until eventually starvation and dehydration lead to his or her death. As I said, it dates back several centuries, and there are examples of this practice happening on every single continent. According to allthingsinteresting.com, it was typically used for capital punishment back in the Roman Empire. Uh, It was used uh, as punishment for a class of priestess known as the Vestal Virgins. You've heard that before, mostly from a Procol Harum tune. I was going to say song lyrics, yeah. yeah. The Vestals were girls that were from higher society Roman families, aristocracy. They were considered to be free of mental and physical defects. They had taken a very strict oath, an oath of celibacy, Boo. And committed themselves to uh, tending a, uh, a sacred fire honoring the goddess of home and family. All right. I like fire. Now, if a vestal virgin, a vestal virgin broke her vow of celibacy, mm-hmm. it got nasty. She was punished uh, with death and buried in the city, or at least that was the uh, original way of doing it. But spilling the blood of a vestal virgin was forbidden throughout the Roman Empire. And no person could be buried within the city, according to laws, ordinances, and things like that. So that's why they would take the Vestal Virgins outside the city. They would prepare a small vault in the ground. They would put a small couch in there. That's nice. And a tiny bit of food and water. And then the Vestal Virgin would be led to the vault, put in the vault, and then walled up. Why? Why? Why bother with the the food and drink? In the furniture, yeah. In the furniture, I yeah. I have no idea. Maybe it was just another way for them to go, you know, these kinds of comfortable things you'll never have again. Or there were a lot of unemployed furniture makers in the area. Sure, yeah. That it was could, part of their infrastructure plan. That, that could very well be. It's the New Deal. Or... As part of the punishment, it was just a really crappy, uncomfortable sofa. Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. because the idea of being walled up on my barca lounger sounds pretty good, actually. I don't even really know what that thing is that you just said. A barca lounger? Yeah. Is it like a lazy boy? It's like a lazy boy. Is it barca lounger, like barca? I, I, don't, I don't know. Spell how it. To, 
I don't know how to spell it. Is it a brand name? Yeah, it's Barca. Barca Lounger. Yeah, they used to give them away on the Prices Right. Google Barca Lounger. Oh, it's spelled B A R C A Lounger. And it's still a thing. Yeah, according to their website, Barca Lounger is your headquarters for reclining comfort. So there you go. Thanks, Google Machine. Well, I've learned something today. Now, there was a similar punishment that was handed down in the Middle Ages by the Roman Catholic Church to, to monks and nuns who had broken their vow of chastity. Really? Or if they expressed heretical ideas, like, you know, the earth goes around the sun, that kind of thing. Right, that crazy talk. But unlike the Vestal Virgins, the monks and the nuns were sealed in a tomb not to die within mere days, but instead they... Uh, allowed them to live a slightly longer life, but it was in complete isolation. It was known as go into peace. The condemned would go without any sort of contact or sight to the outside world, having only food dropped through a small opening. And then slowly over time, they decreased the amount of food and ultimately they succumbed to starvation and or dehydration. Oh, that's worse. Yeah. Plus, I mean, you're... You're just in a little cave thing with all your yeah. poop. And no Barca lounger in the world is going to make up for that. No. Though, <clears throat> if you did have a Barca lounger, you could um, kind of like burrow out the seat and make that into... <laughs> a makeshift toilet? Right. <laughs> so you would not be reclining in comfort, but you'd be doing something in comfort. That's, that's true. Yeah. So yes, capital punishment was one of the main reasons for immurement. But it wasn't just centuries ago, as recently as the 20th century in Mongolia and also in uh, the Persian Empire, which is now Iran. Now, it, again, this is a special kind of capital punishment, like it's reserved for special people. Usually, yeah, it has its history in church, mm -hmm. in the church and punishment for crimes against the church. But... In places like Iran, it could be just a punishment for something like thievery. One of the earliest accounts of this in Persia came from uh, the 17th century from a gem, mer uh, gem merchant. His name was Jean-Baptiste Tavernier, who uh, noted stone tombs in the plains with thieves encased in the stone up to their necks. Uh, he wrote that these guys were left with their heads exposed. It wasn't a sign or a show of mercy. It was so that they would be exposed to the elements and that birds would eat their face. Sure. But even though capital punishment was probably the most popular use for immurement, it was also believed that it brought luck. Oh, to those who did the, the walling? Sometimes, yes. Because um, it's not lucky for those getting walled in. Well, there were some who believed it was. According to Ranker, these immurements were pitched as a type of religious ritual. Like being tossed into a volcano? Yeah, kind of that sort of thing. All right. An adult holy woman would sometimes request to be bricked in for a time. Decades were not unusual. With a young child under the age of 10, uh, children could be orphans, but often they were gifts from the family to the church. Like if a nun wanted to uh, have herself walled in for a couple of decades, a uh, family might tithe their child to keep the nun company while she was bricked up for 20 years. I, 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 
I I think it's important that we remain open and respectful of people's beliefs, but that cry <laughs> you know yep. you yep. know <laughs> Yep. Um I guess the the child served as a symbol of purity and innocence and also of course someone for the nun to play cards with or something. I don't know, just to keep her company. Right. And if she got hungry enough, <laughs> she could eat the kid. Yeah. Well, I don't know if that ever happened, but I, I wonder if that thought entered some of their minds. Sure. Uh, the nun with her quote companion did receive food, usually through a slit in the bricked up wall, but they never ever went outside the enclosed chamber. There is no record of any child going in there surviving. There are records of the holy women leaving, but there are no records of what happened to the children that were bricked up with them. Uh huh. It's because they ate them. (laughs) It was some sort of like purity ritual. They were sucking the purity out of the children and then they were just left heaps of, of baby skin. Yeah, just a withered husk. Yeah. On the floor. Left smoking and. Spent. Spent and shelled in the sand like a smoky. Left spent and smoking like a shotgun shell in the sand. Is that what you're going for? Yep. Uh, I was, okay. I understand. So that's pretty disturbing. But uh, <laughs> <Yo>. <laughs> here's something that's even more disturbing. Human sacrifices. They were used mm-hmm. as immurement was used as a human sacrifice. Okay. Often with children. Mostly to solve some sort of construction problem. Oh, okay. So they used walling, a construction method uh, to create a sacrifice to the walling gods. That's pretty close. Okay. In the 1800s, they were demolishing a bridge in Bremen, Germany, and in it they found the skeleton of a child within the structure of the foundation. Tradition held that if they were building a bridge, for example, and they were having trouble constructing it, mm-hmm. that they would sacrifice a pure child so that their bridge would be straight and level. Oh, sure. And it was even more of a common practice to do that with castle walls. Okay. The idea is you sacrifice an innocent child by you know building a castle on his head. The purity of the child would keep the walls from ever falling down. You know, that's just going to create more issues with leveling it out. You know what's not level? Human bones. Also, if you continue having problems, do you just huck another baby in there? Sure, yeah. You have to shore it up. Maybe start with uh, a pre-adolescent and then maybe a toddler. And then when you get down to the fine detail work of the leveling, yeah, you use small babies. Well... They also used adults oh, okay. as well. They did find the skeleton of an adult in the wall of the church in Hallsworthy, England. Uh, in 1885, they found some guy bricked up in the wall there. Now, would you start a project with some wall people uh, to avoid issues? Or was it just if there was already an issue with the construction? Both. If it was oh, a God. bridge, you know, and they were having problems with the uh, construction of it, oftentimes they would sacrifice a child with the idea that, you know, the bridge gods would help them, you right. know, build a 
a, uh, a level and straight structure. With castles, it was more of a uh, preventative, preventative measure, preventative strike, if you will. It. it will bury a bunch of toddlers under the wall, and that way it'll make the wall impenetrable. That was the thinking there. Okay. Mm. Jazar Pasha was uh, an 18th century governor of Lebanon and Palestine. He was known for unbelievable cruelties to anybody who angered him. At some point during his rule, he decided that uh, he was going to build a new structure, a wall around the city of Beirut. But he didn't want just any wall. He wanted something that was not only strong, but also decorative and entertaining to him. So what he did was he captured as many Greek Christians as he could find and had them built into the wall. He laid a row of Christians and then they'd pour like some kind of mortar. They were alive. Pour mortar over them and then put another layer of Christians. Oh, man. But they would leave their heads exposed. Okay. So that they died slowly. So the, that their skulls would be popping out of the... Their, yes. So their skulls remained as, uh, as interior decor. Was it on the inside or the outside of the wall? Well, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I think the outside would be scarier to those trying to get in. Right, but he seemed to be really fixated on the beauty of it. So maybe it was on the inside, So because it's referred to a couple of times as decor. Okay. Plus, I'm, I'm pretty sure that there's no homeowners association in the world that's going to allow skulls on the outside, the outside. of your fence. Right. It makes no sense at all. Not if your brother-in-law couldn't park his truck in the driveway. Yeah, my brother-in-law, my sister and brother-in-law, they, they lived in uh, Boca Raton for a number of years in a really nice exclusive neighborhood with, you know, the gated entry and, mm -hmm. and stuff. And for those of you who've been to Boca, it's all Lamborghinis and Teslas. And, you know, my brother-in-law drove a pickup truck. Yeah. And even though he owned the home in this place, they didn't want him to park his pickup truck in his own driveway. No. It was a new pickup truck, too. It was a really nice Toyota Tundra. But no, it's a pickup truck. You can't park it in the driveway. It had to go in the garage. So they moved. <laughs> <laughs> and there you have it. People getting walled up. Wow. That was a greater variety of types of walling up sure. than I was expecting. I wanted it to be kind of a potpourri of immurement. It certainly was that. I was thinking about this. Let me ask you what you would rather do. Would you rather be walled up alive or buried alive? Uh, walled up. Yeah, me too. I, the idea of being underground. Oh, God. Sometimes, though, when they would enclose them alive, it was in like a coffin. They wouldn't bury it. Oftentimes, they would uh, they would just nail them into a coffin and then hang the coffin from a tree or something until they died. That way, you can reuse it. That's true. Reduce, reuse, recycle. <laughs> I'm a child of the 80s. We were going to call it Kevin, but it didn't do well in focus groups. So now we call it That Thing in the Middle. So one day in 1959... Lieutenant Colonel William Rankin was flying his single-engine plane over Virginia. At the altitude of 47,000 feet, the engine failed. Stall. And Lieutenant Colonel Stall. Rankin had to bail out. Stall. A storm was in progress, and he fell right through the middle of it. Now, it would normally take a man about 13 minutes to fall 47,000 feet. But because he was falling through a storm, Rankin got caught in the updrafts. 
and he actually stayed airborne for 45 minutes. As he was tossed about in temperatures as low as minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit, his body was battered by hailstones and covered in ice and sleet. At about 10,000 feet, fortunately for him, his parachute opened and he landed intact in a tree in North Carolina, 65 miles from where he had bailed out. Lieutenant Colonel William Rankin made a complete recovery. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. This is the Box of Oddities. Your mileage may vary.
Got this email, curator at theboxofoddities.com, Cat and Jethro. I was watching an episode of How It's Made on the Science Channel. They were showing how to make 55-gallon drums, and the narrator of the, show, of the show said that they use different thicknesses of metal depending upon what is going to be stored in it. My first thought was, oh, like dead bodies. Mm. And my second thought was, that came from listening to the Box of Oddities. Well, <laughs> Colleen, you're welcome. I was re-watching some old episodes of Jeopardy when Julia uh, was on in uh, 2014. She yeah. was a delight. Um, that's not uh, related in any way to drums filled with bodies. I just wanted to mention how much I really love Julia. <laughs> Have I mentioned how much I really love your stories? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> how about one now? Well, I was watching Jeopardy the other no, day. No, and- I've heard that one. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Are you familiar with Mohenjo-Daro? I am not familiar with that at all. I wasn't either. And then as I started learning about it, I thought, well, it's silly that I don't already know about this. Is it a person? No, it's a place. Mohenjo-Daro was built around 2500 BCE. It was one of the largest settlements of the ancient Indus Valley civilization and one of the world's earliest major cities. The words Mohenjo-Daro literally translate to the Mounds of the Dead. Professor Ahmad Hassan Dani, one of the world's leading archaeologists, revealed fascinating details about the ruins at Mohenjo-Daro and the incredible way that this ancient city was built. Did they construct bridges out of toddlers? You know, they didn't, uh, as far as I know. They weren't very forward-thinking, were they? In 1945, uh, he helped to excavate with the great British archaeologist Sir Mortimer Wheeler at Mohenjo-Daro, which is in current uh, modern-day Pakistan. Okay. I love the name Mortimer. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful name. The city's wealth and stature is evident in artifacts such as ivory, lapis, carnelian, and gold beads, as well as the baked brick that the city structures themselves are built with. At the time, there was a watertight pool called the Great Bath, which was perched on top of a mound of dirt and held in place with walls of baked brick. And it is the closest structure that Mohenjo-Daro has to a temple. A National Geographic grantee suggests that that structure and the other features that that show such an emphasis on the usage of water uh, says that they have a ideology based on cleanliness and it may be related to keeping your soul clean. I know that in that region there are still some ideas about rivers carrying water that can clean your soul and sure yeah, yeah. so, Wells were found throughout this city, and nearly every house in the city contained a bathing area and a drainage system. 2500 BCE. Yeah. No shit. Yeah. So the citadel 
which was a mud brick mound around 12 meters or 39 feet high, is known to have supported public baths. It was a large residential structure designed to house about 5,000 citizens and two large assembly halls. This city had a central marketplace with a very large central well. Um, Individual households or groups of households obtained water from smaller wells. Many of the houses had their own well, which was incredibly uh, unusual, just mind-blowing, really, for that time period. They had a system for wastewater. It was channeled to covered drains that lined the majority of the streets. It was more advanced than... European cities decades and decades later. I mean, it's just it's incredible the systems that they had. How did it, how did it stack up with the uh, Roman plumbing systems? Very similar. They no had kidding. aqueducts that brought water from lower areas up to the the central area. Some houses included rooms that appeared to have been set aside just for bathing. One known building had an underground furnace, uh, which is called a hypocast, which was, they're assuming, was used for heating bathing water. This was pretty intricate. Very intricate. The location of the Mohenjo-daro was built in a relatively short period of time, and the water system and wells were some of the first planned constructions. This city was did not spring up willy-nilly. It was very organized and built in a very specific, focused way. Like a grid pattern? Yes. No kidding. Yeah. And during my reading about this, I discovered that there's some really neat pictures of planned cities from space, which, of course, you don't think when you're planning a city that it's going to you know, look any sort of way aerially, but uh, <laughs> it, they really do look neat. But that's not that has nothing to do with this. City. That's pleasing to you, isn't it? it is, because it's very symmetric. It's very nice. Yes. So, so much excavation was done uh, not long after the site was discovered, and that was about 1911. So, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, a lot of excavation was done. It's still being done. And uh, during this time, over 700 wells are present at Mohenjo-daro, along with the draining and bathing systems. That number is unheard of when compared to other civilizations at that time. Is there still water in yeah. these? No kidding. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I saw a documentary about uh, the Roman aqueducts, and some of them are still, the water is still running through them. It's amazing. Without any type of maintenance over centuries and centuries and centuries. Absolutely incredible. There was actually a video that I watched of a man pulling up water from a 4,500-year-old well. I mean, it was it's insane. It was nuts. So the sheer size of the city and its uh, the way that the buildings were set up and the facilities were uh, suggests a very high level of social organization and planning. And the city was divided into two parts, as I mentioned, the citadel and then the lower city. Uh, one of the things that's notable, and and I mentioned during the, the discussion of that public bath area, um, is that the whole city, it lacks any sort of palaces or temples or monuments to speak of. There's no obvious central seat of government, no evidence of a king or a queen. So it's, it's kind of a cooperative 
it seems that way. Community. Modesty, cleanliness were really focused on. Um, pottery and tools, copper and stones were standardized. There were uh, seals and weights that suggested a system of tightly controlled trade. There are no signs of any warring. No weaponry. There are no weapons. Wow. Or or references to wars. I want to live there. It, <laughs> one of the things that they have found a lot of, though, are uh, remnants of games and toys. And it seems like this was a very fun-loving, loosey-goosey kind of community. They, they <laughs> loved playing games and had a lot of neat things that, that they played with. Lots of uh, board games and uh, kids' games, but as well, you know, adults' games as well. This sounds like heaven. I know. It sounds me. wonderful. Yeah. Or kind of also like an old hippie commune from the 60s. Right. <laughs> um, but it also suggests why it might have been vulnerable to invaders. So what did happen to the uh, Indus civilization and Mohenjo-Daro itself? Is, it's kind of a mystery. So uh, in the National Geographic article that I read, they interviewed University of Wisconsin-Madison archaeologist Jonathan Mark Kenoyer. And he suggests that the Indus River changed course, and that would have changed the local agricultural economy and the city's importance as a center of trade. Also, there was some uh, thought that the flooding of the river would have provided a certain amount of water to the city. And since they were so focused on getting water from any, yeah, right, right. any and everywhere. Probably also the flooding helped provide nutri- uh, nutrients for the soil for agriculture. That's true. There's actually no evidence that exists that severe flooding happened in the city, though. And the city wasn't totally abandoned. Uh, so it changing river course doesn't explain the collapse of the entire civilization although of course that it would have changed a lot of things but it, there was also a lot of damage to uh, certain items within the city that would lead someone to believe that the people occupying it at the last part of its heyday let's say weren't jazzed about the city so maybe a little destruction maybe there were invaders hmm. but not enough to nail down that as a reason why it would have been abandoned. So the downfall of the city, did it appear to have been a an event or did it just kind of peter out over time? It looks like overall, like on the large scheme of things, it was pretty quickly, but it wasn't all at once. Mm-hmm. And that happened around 1900 BC. But according to this archaeologist, what exactly drove that abandonment? Um, no one knows. Hmm. Maybe what happened is that they had to report back to their alien overlords. Oh, yeah. Maybe that was something to do with it yeah. then. Yeah. They came down and time to go, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, it's really neat. Um, and like I said, for the uh, incredible advanced nature of this society, the ruins, which you can still see, I and mean, you can still walk through the walls of, of these buildings. I mean, you can, there are hallways with eight foot walls that you can walk in. I mean, it's incredible. And what remains shows you how incredible it must have been at that time. And you can, you can see it. It's, it's mind-blowing. And the fact that I didn't know anything about it is very upsetting to me. <laughs> <laughs> so was this, this was 
excavated was it wasn't just sitting on the top of the uh, earth for 4,500 years. It was. That's right. Um, Archaeologists first visited it in 1911. Several excavations occurred in the 1920s through 1931. Uh, Small probes took place in the 1930s, and then subsequent digs occurred in 1950 and 1964. It's just been kind of uncovered over the years, and that whole region is filled with treasures Mm. that they keep finding. Um, One of the keepers of Mohenjo-Daro was saying in a video that I watched, and I can't remember his name, and I do apologize, but he was saying how they were doing some digging nearby Mohenjo-Daro and were just pulling out pieces of pottery and throwing them to the side because, you know, obviously that's not what they're digging for. Right, right. Amateur archaeologists. They weren't amateur archaeologists. They were like construction dudes who were just digging holes. Okay. And so they weren't interested in the archaeology of it. So they're just hucking these amazing ancient ruins to the side like garbage people. That's awful. Yeah, it's terrible. I hate it when I hear about history that could unlock a lot of secrets to our ancestry just being tossed aside, whether it's grave robbers or construction workers or poorly trained amateur archaeologists. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, it's incredible. I I encourage you 100% to go check out videos of it. It's, it's really, it's fascinating and um, remarkable and something that I think is worth investigating. That's all, I guess. I had never heard of this place. And it's one of the this, earliest cities in the world. This this type of archaeological discovery is right in my wheelhouse. I love shit like this. So thank you for finding that. That's, You're welcome. I'm going to be digging digging into that far more deeply. When we did our first live show back in February at uh, Zany's Comedy Nightclub in Nashville, we did a, a brief question and answer uh, session at the end of the show. It was only a couple of questions. This time, I think we're going to expand a little bit, but we need your help. Would you like to send us a question? Please send your questions that we may or may not use for our questions and answers section. That sounded very aggressive, didn't it? It's okay. It's hot in here. Thank you. And I'm wearing a sweater. (laughs) It's gray, though. At least you're consistent in your wardrobe choices. (laughs) Curator at theboxofoddities.com. Please keep the subject line Q&A so that we know to set those aside. And uh, we do appreciate it. We're happy to include your your questions. We're not going to do a ton, but we're looking forward to being able to do that. Oh, my brain's not working. <laughs> we got to turn the air conditioner back on. All right, we're done. Uh, the Box of Oddities, it's on your phone, whether you know it or not, uh, a couple of times a week. It's a show that's right in your pocket. Like a Polly Pocket. Oh, I have a friend who loves Polly Pockets so much, and she's like my age. Well, she's a little younger than I am, but um, she collects Polly Pockets and she scours eBay all the time. And the other day she got sniped and she was so sad. <laughs> she was so sad. And so now I just want to buy her all the Polly Pockets. Oh, you're, you're sweet. That's what's great about uh, sites like eBay. You can buy your childhood back. That's right. I That's right. I love, I love that and, uh, and trolling antique stores Obviously. for the same reasons <laughs> and as i was saying the show will be back on your phone with a freshly baked episode uh, this coming thursday until then keep flying that freak flag fly it proudly you beautiful freak and so let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you
and its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2019, all rights reserved history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight and of course women who have been misrepresented through all time on who did what now the history podcast that's not your history class listen wherever you get your podcasts hi i'm neil and i'm ken and we are from the triviality podcast a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world plus tons of extra themed episodes if you want to improve your trivia game or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong then we're the show for you find triviality on all your favorite podcast apps but you know that because you're already listening to a podcast